Hey everyone, welcome back to the Monday edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and I'm joined today by the Sultan of Swag, Jeremy Greenfield of Digital Book World. Jeremy, how's it going? I'm I'm honored by that uh, by that <laughs> nickname. It's going well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. I mean, at least you have a title. I don't have a title at all. Unless it's like maybe like the court jester or something like that. We'll, we'll, we'll think of one for you. All right. So we have a lot of things to talk about. Uh, a lot of things um, have come over the wire that we've both written about extensively. Um, a few of them have to do with Barnes & Noble. And, you know, basically the founder of the company is reducing his stake. And he's done it twice so far. Uh, yeah, Len Riggio has gone from 30% last year, uh, ownership of the company, chairman of the board, to 20%. He's still the largest shareholder. The first sale of stock was last year, reduced his stake to just a smidge under 28%, and then the sale this year was a bit, bit bigger and reduced his stake to uh, 20%. You know, he basically says, you know, he's doing this for retirement planning purposes. You know, he should be able to take money out and, and sort of, you know, have fun with it. He's, he's older now. Um, you know, Wall Street didn't really like this move, obviously, when a very large stakeholder who's also involved in the management of the company, an insider, as it were, uh, you know, reduces stake. That, that's always a red flag uh, for Wall Street. And, you know, Barnes & Noble stock has suffered after a, a, a nice uh, multi-month rally. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, Barnes & Noble stock immediately sort of, like, went down after that. And it's not surprising because, you know, when you, like you said, when you have your top, major stakeholder reducing their 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 stock and you have to wonder what's actually going on maybe behind the scenes is he like being forthcoming and in, in his reasons why i i kind of doubt it i think that there's always more extenuating factors and things like that but do you think that overall i mean in the short term this reduced their stock i think by a few dollars long term though with the founder reducing his like stock so he only has like 20%. Do you think that this could possibly give way to a buyout? Uh yeah, it is possible. I don't think that um you know, Riggio's I it, it depends on who bought the stock. You know, if if a uh, if a large block of stock was sold to um say uh shareholders of Walmart, um, you know, that would be something. Uh, but I don't think that uh, necessarily means anything. I think it, it's gonna be, it would be harder for uh, someone to purchase the company uh, if the ownership is more fractured. But I don't think that Barnes & Noble has any problems like that. I'm, I think that it has to do with Riggio seeing that the stock had gone pretty high. You know, Barnes & Noble isn't really an investment-grade stock anymore because there's really not a lot of growth potential at the company. It's, it's a company that is, can be a cash cow, it can be a very profitable company, but it's not going to grow significantly uh, anymore. You know, it's, it's physical retail bookstores are the only thing that are profitable at the company. And I think we have all seen the writing on the wall with that. That is not a growth business anymore. I mean, it can be a successful business, and it's one that I think we all believe will be successful uh, in, in the next um, several years. Um, but I don't think that it's a growth business. So, um, you know, the it, it doesn't surprise me that he sold because I think he's selling at a very high point for the company. Have you heard of Barnes & Noble's new digital learning initiative called Yuzu? Yeah. 
All right. So apparently it's it's an early beta right now, and we've reached out to the company for comment. They basically said that this summer uh, for back to school, they're going to flesh out the site. If you visit the site right now, uh, it's very bare bones. Like it, it looks almost terrible. Um, but you know, I guess like the essence of the service is that. It's looking to replace Nook Study in terms of being able to have an e-reading app for textbooks, to be able to buy more digital textbooks on the go. Um, it's available only right now for iTunes, but you can visit their website, which is uh, college.yuzu.com. Uh, what are your impressions of it so far? Uh, you know, I haven't had a lot of time to look at it, but obviously this is an area that Barnes & Noble uh, needs to be in. Um, it needs to find a way to capitalize on its large network of college retail stores. I think that when investors think about the value in Barnes & Noble's digital play, uh, the value is locked up a lot in, in the possibilities for education and selling e-textbooks and, and other educational content materials at a very high margin. If you look across um, all of book publishing, and where investors are finding value, it's in that higher education area and that, that, that classroom area. So um, you know, I think this is absolutely essential for the company to uh, do something quality here. Now the question is, is that one of Barnes & Noble's most profitable arms of the company is the bookstores within colleges and universities in the States. Do you think that if this Yuzu platform gets off the ground and people actually start using it, which I, I, you know, I don't anticipate, but do you think that they can cannibalize their own digital te or their own textbook sales? Um, you know, obviously it can, but that's not something that, you know, the company should be worrying about right now. Uh, obviously the company needs to, um, you know, be worrying about what what is it going to do with a business that is a very challenged legacy business and you know obviously that is the uh its current you know network of retail bookstores so one thing that i've really been talking about recently um and a lot of students in, in the states have been protesting against this it's like when they're college or university goes purely digital where they say you know next semester all of the textbooks that you'll buy will be in, in digital format and on a surface you think you know all right you know most digital textbooks are 60 percent uh less expensive than their physical counterparts so if you buy a new textbook you're 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 getting a deal um but, you know, in retrospect, if you don't have a tablet, you're going to have to buy one. Um, if you, you know, like an iPad or, or like a big Android tablet. But the one thing about digital textbooks is that it almost destroys like the secondary market. So um, mm -hmm. st students that are buying their textbooks used off of like Craigslist or eBay or in a lot of these college towns that have like three or four uh, different colleges you know, in a smaller town, you have like a series of indie bookstores that their lifeblood basically is selling, you know, used textbooks, you know, um, you'll be done a semester, you'll go down to the secondhand store and sell it for like, you know, 80% less than what you paid for it. But that shop owner could now like resell those books and actually make a profit. And when all mm -hmm. of these schools are going digital now, 
it's you know destroying more indie bookstores that you know depended on this um but you're also forcing students to have to not pay you know have the they don't have the option anymore to buy like used books it's like you have to buy digital books digital books only what do you feel about sort of that sort of dichotomy well the efficiency that you know we've created with these digital marketplaces have cut out so many middlemen and clearly you know the bookstores are um, you know, uh, very much under pressure as a result of this. That's one half of the issue. The other half of the issue is um, that, uh, you know, the digital goods are not resellable at this point uh, for the most part. And it looks like, you know, based on recent court decisions, that that's not really going to change in the U.S. anytime soon. Um, so, you know, I think that on the one hand, you know, you're killing a secondary market because there is no secondary market for digital goods. Um, and, and I would say that you would have to watch very closely whether this encourages people to pirate the digital goods. Um, and, uh, and second of all, you know, because the secondary market's going away, all the middlemen involved in the secondary market, you know, are going to uh, suffer as a result. So uh, I don't know whether it's good or bad for colleges or students. It's certainly challenging for, um, you know, campus bookstores. Okay. So... Let's uh, talk about reading habits. Um, you know, every few months, uh, a major sort of study or poll comes out. Uh, Pew, Pew Research, Nielsen, Gartner, you know, they always uh, release uh, these like surveys and polls to give us a sense on, um, you know, e-reader, tablet ownership. Uh, ebook, um, you know, adoption, things like that. So uh, Harris, which is actually owned by Nielsen, which does, you know, Nielsen Book Scan, uh, they recently did a poll. They interviewed about 2,400 people, and they found that 54% of Americans currently read ebooks, and the people that do read ebooks are reading a lot more books than people that just rely on their physical counterparts. Are you surprised? You know, I'm not sure I believe this study. Um, the part about it that uh, makes sense to me that I believe in is, uh, you know, that uh, is, is the part that we already confirmed, which is that people who read ebooks don't very rarely primarily read ebooks uh, or only read ebooks. Um, sorry, only read ebooks is, is the difference. Um, the, the part of 54%, I mean, it just conflicts so widely with all of the other numbers that we've heard. And I emailed, I talked to, I, I called them and I emailed the Harris folks and nobody got back to me. Um, so I really just would like to resolve why it is that all the other studies that we're seeing say that 28% or so of uh, U.S. adults read ebooks, whereas this study says 54%. Well, I think it comes down to it like this Harris poll only interviewed like 2,500 people. And I mean, where were those people geographically located? We don't know. Were they urbanized? Yeah, we don't know anything about it. Yeah. yeah. It, it's like, it's sort of like Amazon numbers, you know? Like, here's a bunch of numbers, but like you have no way to actually confirm anything. So it's I like. Mean, Harris is a very reputable organization that creates a lot of intelligence and data for the business community. And it's owned by Nielsen. So another reputable organization that yeah. has a lot of, um, you know, com comfort with the book publishing industry. 
so I want to believe it, but I, I really don't have anything to go on aside from those two things. Uh, otherwise, the numbers just seem suspicious. And I think that the book publishing industry, especially the digital side, is looking at this right now and sort of just saying, wow. And they're not really thinking enough about the fact that this may not actually be true or may not be sound, or it really may call into question a lot of other findings um, from Pew. Or maybe there was just some sort of miraculous jump in the level of e-reading over the course of three months, although I tend not to think so. You know, maybe they conducted their poll with like you know, people in a specific area like urbanites, you know, because uh, people who read ebooks, I would figure, I, I know from experience they're more like urban because they're, they're more connected, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to buy into it. So I, I'd be interested to see like where their, did their poll come from the East Coast, the West Coast? How did the people who did this survey, you know, did they do it on a website? Did you approach them? You know, there, there's a lot of questions that I have about this that I didn't really have about Pew or, or Gardner, you know, uh, reports because they're pretty transparent and, you know, uh, in their survey findings. But yeah, I mean, 54%, I would say that have ever read an ebook. Yeah, I could, I could see that who currently read ebooks like you know whereas that's all you read that seems like a little skewed to me so um let me know if you went if you find out you know from those guys and um i will absolutely we can follow it up next week so jumping to amazon um probably one of the biggest stories of last week was uh goodreads allowing people to sync their Amazon purchases to their Goodreads account. So this is the first time that um, we've seen direct synergy between Amazon and Goodreads, other than Goodreads, you know, um, ha be available on the Kindle Paperwhites and, right. you know, things mm -hmm. like that. But that was just basically like an icon that took you to Goodreads. You never really mm -hmm. had like direct synergy, but now you do where – if you buy something from Amazon and you have a Goodreads account, you could sync you you can elect to sync one or two books, like you know, be selective like one by one, or you could just like bulk sync everything you've ever purchased to your Goodreads shelf. Um, what are your impressions about this? Um, you know, obviously this is great for people who uh, want to be complete about you know what did I read, what's in my library. Um, that sort of thing. I mean, it's it's really kind of the promise of what Amazon and Goodreads together can do. That was really powerful for readers, um, you know. And as a reader who uses, I read a lot of ebooks on Amazon, but I also, uh, you know, use Goodreads to some extent. You know, this makes me happy. This makes me feel like I'm glad that these two companies got together. Um, you know, I think that for publishers, this is also uh, very interesting because you know, books that are in sort of someone's personal backlist that someone personally, um, you know, uh, you know, once was involved in are now can come back to the forefront. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful for publishers. I'm kind of glad that we're starting to see more Amazon and Goodreads stuff going on because like for the longest time, you know, the two sides never really had anything much to do with each other. So I think that this is cool, but I mean, at the same time, do you think that Goodreads will have adoption for other companies to be able to sync their books? Because let's not forget a lot of, 
uh, like Sony and and Kobo, they all use Goodreads reviews. So sure. um, or or Sony did, but they still right. use it within certain segments. They use like a, another service now. But you know, a lot of companies other than those big ones use you know the goodreads api which is their coding library to you know have the goodreads reviews on their websites and things like that so do you think that there is any more possible synergy between goodreads and other companies or do you think it's sort of goodreads and amazon bedfellows from now on that's a good question i don't know i mean amazon is obviously a fierce competitor um, at the same time, you know, keeping Goodreads vibrant means keeping it, you know, somewhat platform agnostic, and I think the folks at Amazon to some extent know that. But I think it's also an open question, you know, how much longer are some of these other platforms going to remain, you know, viable in and of themselves? It really is an open question. So, um, you know, I don't know whether we're not going to see any more uh, synergies between other companies and Goodreads, but, um, you know, I'd like to see Goodreads continue to be a place where, you know, reading is celebrated no matter where it happens. I totally agree. I mean, I think that that was the spirit of Goodreads all along, where it didn't really matter if you read on e-reader A, B, or C. You, we could all go to that site and just talk about the books that we loved. You know, it doesn't really matter if you're picking up the physical book, whether it's a, a tattered dog-eared paperback or whether it's like a shiny new hardcover or if you bought it like on your Kobo or whether you bought it wherever. You know, it's like it's, it's a platform for people to talk about books, to share reading progression, reading goals. And I think that that's really the spirit behind Goodreads and you know, I like the fact that Amazon is making it easier to sync books that you may have forgotten you've read. <laughs> or, you know, when I check out my Amazon account, I'm actually surprised about how many books I actually have. And being able to just, like, sync it en masse, fairly cool. I just hope that that maybe that syncing technology now that it's there can maybe be offered to other, you know, booksellers as well. We've all talked about ebook subscription services in the past. You know, me and Jeremy, you and I track this uh, profusely, you know, we talk about all mm -hmm. the new startups and everything like that. So, eRita is a company that uh, burst onto the scene last September, but they really recently changed their name. I think in about December to Entitle, and this is one of those Netflix for uh, like eBooks, but they actually do something different than like Scribd and everything else does. Uh, for nine dollars and ninety nine cents, you can download two books per month and lots of big name publishers have attached Do they lower the price to 9.99 now? Yeah. Wow. So that, that's news. I mean it, it's good because you know a lot of those other competitor services big publishers are attached to it but they only offer like backlist titles so you're not kind of reading the newest of the new you're kind of reading books that have been out for a while but um entitle could offer more frontlist titles because you don't it's not all you could eat you know it's like you can only download two books a month for 9.99 and whatever those books are that you could read so mm -hmm. what this company has done in addition to offer a different business model is they're finally appealing to people with e-readers so Amazon excluded because they have their own proprietary ebook format, but everyone else, um, including like tablet owners and smartphone owners, could actually um, copy books that they purchase from Entitle now uh, directly to their e-reader. So 
what happens is they allow you to download the ebook to your PC and then you could use Adobe Digital Editions to copy that book to like your your Nook or your your Kobo or your you know pocketbook or whatever obscure e-reader that you have from China. You could easily copy these books now and read them on your device and they're the only actually subscription company that allows you to do that uh, most others only rely on they their, have their apps. own sort of app that you read on yeah so they they have their ios app or they have their android app and and that's how you read stuff and you know obviously when you are using apps you're not really downloading those books to your device it's it's like you're reading them in the cloud and and that actually is a complicated thing because I've seen a lot of companies that rely on this cloud reading technology that end up going out of business and because they never allowed customers to download the stuff to their computer you have no way to back it up so you could have bought a thousand you know uh, manga titles over the course of two or three years uh, this company goes bankrupt and all of a sudden all the content you ever purchased is gone but if you read like the you know the terms of use you kind of realize that with digital content there really isn't ever any ownership you're just licensing it from the company yeah yeah absolutely so at, at least with this it's it's a way that you could read the books on the go you know on your on your e-reader which i think is cool well, the problem it is cool. The the problem with Erita, you know, was was initially was the price point. And if Erita has has um, lowered its price point to be comfortable with other services, you know, that's when it can start to get competitive. And if it has a catalog that is, you know, frontless titles, I feel like that could provide a lot of value for uh, for readers. Um, you know, they're getting a slight discount. So it's more like a book club rather than a sort of subscription service. Yeah, exactly. Subscription. So they're getting a slight discount. You know, publishers going to get built-in readers. Um, you know, it's a place where they can discover uh, new books. Um, so, you know, I think that that's actually a very good move to, to lower the price and to be available in those places. So a big story that's only really happened over the last few days, and I mean, this story might be only relevant to people that are in the publishing industry or are self-published authors, uh, people that have used um, an ebook site called Results Source, and they have been skewered in the media in terms of... Uh, you know, they're a company that basically will artificially put you on a bestseller list by offering you different packages to get on the on uh, you know the Washington Post or the New York Times or even like Barnes and Noble and Kobo or Amazon's bestseller list. Um, how they work is that they allow authors to buy their own books at. A, a discount but they use like all these different proxies so you can buy like a few hundred thousand titles of your own book but you're not paying the jacket price you're paying like a, a discounted bulk price and what they mm -hmm. do is they spread those purchases out amongst like a thousand or two thousand different people to make it look like more organic and um, mm -hmm. it actually fools Nielsen's book scan which basically a lot of these companies that have bestseller lists they pull their data directly from Nielsen. So um, results source sort of fools Nielsen and then Nielsen reports, uh, you know, suddenly this book is selling hundreds of thousands of copies and it rockets to number like two or three on the bestseller list. And then that author could say, you know, look, 
I'm a New York Times bestselling author, you know? Right. Eat that, like, you know, girl who, who said no to a date with me in high school. So <laughs> <laughs> this company, um, it mainly appealed – originally when it launched, it was, like, focusing on, like, pastors and priests and, you know, things like that. And then uh, more authors started to get attractive to the platform. The company's made a lot of money over the years, but now they're gone. Uh, their website, which was full of case studies and purchase options, it's all gone. Their Twitter, their Facebook, all their social media stuff, gone. It, they have like a single landing page, which is basically their logo and a contact form. What what happened? Do we know anything, Jeremy? I don't think we know what happened. And just because its online presence is gone doesn't mean the company itself is gone. I mean, anything could have happened. You know, Erita has been in the news lately uh, for some, you know, unsavory – not Erita, I'm sorry. Um, Results Source has been in the news for some unsavory reasons uh, lately. It's sort of the New York Times has written about it a number of, of times. You've written about it a number of times. Um, you know, nobody likes to be fooled. Nobody likes to, to have their system gamed. And, and that's sort of what Results Source – uh, promises to people. Um, so, you know, I actually don't know exactly what happened here, and I don't think that we're going to know what happened here uh, anytime soon necessarily. Um, so I, I uh, will like to wait and see. I'm not sure this company is actually gone. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I can speculate. I, I know that I've read a few articles uh, in the Wall Street Journal and other sources that claim that um, they're in trouble with the IRS because a lot of the people that uh, were buying into Results Source were using church funds in order to do it. So they, they were writing their own books. They actually, you know, got permission, you know, from uh, heads above them to use the church funds for this. But... I think that the IRS might be investigating a lot of the auth you know, the church people that really maybe didn't ask for permission but still used church funds in order to uh, finance their book for a result source. Um, so that could be a possible issue. I know that that's something that the journal um, drew uh, alludements to. Um, we'll probably never know because things like this rarely become public. But we could speculate because that's our jobs as right. in, in top industry vet veterans and pundits and all that type of stuff. So I, I would probably say that something drastic had to have happened for results source to basically like whitewash their entire online existence. Um, a simple rebranding effort wouldn't have resulted in, in their Twitter account just being shut down overnight with nothing to show for it. So it's, it's a very interesting Yeah, you're story. probably right about that, that it, it probably is not that. Um, but, you know, we don't know. All right. So, so we'll have to wait and see. When uh, you were at the London Book Fair, you had actually spoke with a number of companies that that release. You know, you know, we always hear in the digital publishing world that people are trying new things. You know, whether it's mm -hmm. apps or whether it's like this Barnes Noble Yuzu business or or other things. But I mean, with digital publishing, because it's so new you kind of have to try different methods. You know, some do ebook subscription services, some just try wacky ideas. But apparently some of the companies that you've talked to actually make a regular thing of trying out new ideas. Well, yeah, and we see this in the U.S. as well. I mean, companies like uh, FNW Media, my own employer, uh, tries out a lot of new things a lot. Uh, Sourcebooks has become known for being a very innovative 
publishing company. A lot of the larger publishers um, regularly uh, bring to bear new ideas and try new things digital publishing. It kind of makes sense though, because in the U.S., you know, uh, a lot of people are reading eBooks, and a lot of people have tablets, and a lot of people are, are reading differently. And you know, readers are trying new things, and, and publishers need to be trying new things to get out ahead of it. Um, but in Italy, uh, where e-reading e is something like only 4 or 5% of the market by revenue. Um, we have a publisher, Rizzoli, which is a small publisher in the U.S., but in Italy it's a massive publisher. Um, it, it, uh, Rizzoli is, has an innovation lab where basically it's constantly trying out new things and constantly experimenting, you know, despite that e-books and digital publishing are not a sure thing in Italy right now. And I really admire that kind of experimentation. One great example I think we all could get behind is that Rizzoli provides free streaming ebooks uh, to commuters on the high speed rails in Italy. Um, and so if you are someone who gets on the high speed train in Italy, you can sort of, you know, through your phone or through your tablet device, stream some free front list new Rizzoli ebooks. Um, now, as a publisher, you might say, oh no, we're giving away our best books for free to people who are probably going to buy them. Well, the longest trip on any of these trains is three hours. And Rizzoli has the power to rotate books in and out. Um, so, you know, it should encourage people to uh, to check out a book, read a little bit of it, and perhaps buy more, buy buy the book later. And I would love on sort of the transportation options here. You know, for instance, bus is a way that a lot of people get from city to city, and all these buses now have Wi-Fi. Uh, Amtrak, uh, people go Amtrak city to city, go have Wi-Fi. Um, you know, airplanes have in-airplane entertainment systems. Um, I would love to see ebooks get in the mix, and I really admire a company that, uh, even though ebooks are not a huge part of the business in Italy, are experimenting and trying to think about the future. I agree, and I applaud forward thinking like that. And um, you know, free ebooks on high speed rails. I've seen it before, but mainly in Poland, in Sweden, and Denmark, they have done things like that before, where you can either scan a QR code and get free books, or whether it's like an app that they offer where you could, you know, read books while on the go and. It's sort of the equivalent of like if you take a lot of public transportation, you notice a lot of those free dailies that they offer. You know, these uh, mm -hmm. free little newspapers where it's like, you know, and you get your entertainment, you get your news, you get, you know, uh, local advertising, you get all of that. So I wish they would kind of like embrace like a digital, you know, model of that where you could like get these digital only papers you know uh for free but you know a new form that was basically just done for digital something like that mm -hmm. I, I find compelling one thing i wanted to kind of uh, talk to you about uh before we wrap up the show i don't think we've talked about this before but i think it's it's a it's a really important issue the more i think about it um about our ebooks being altered um we haven't talked about this before right no, I don't think so. Okay, so we all know that in the U.S. there's a lot of books on the ban list, um, you know, for libraries and for schools and for high schools and things like that. Um, sometimes it's because of its racy subject matter, and other times it's because of the language being used. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at, say, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, a lot of people would agree that uh, that book is one of the best books ever written, and it was done yes. in 1884. But when you read the book, it's it's full of a lot of racial slurs, you know, to, mm -hmm. to say the least. There's a lot of verbiage being used that would maybe offend some of the modern sensibilities of people yeah. today. But when the book was written, it 
that's the way people talked. I mean, you only really have to listen to your grandparents talk, and a lot of them are, are they're, they're <laughs> not my grandparents, Michael. Really? Go on. <laughs> my my, no, my they, grandparents yeah. admittedly. Um, they were, they were pretty racist sometimes, you know what I mean? But, I mean, it was like that was their era that they lived in, right? So mm-hmm. when it comes to the Huckleberry Finn, it's on the, the, the ban list in a lot of schools because of the verbiage that's being used. So what a, a, an Alabama-based publisher called New South Books reissued the book in 2011 and substituted all of the you know of the racially charged words as it were to completely different words so this book now didn't use any of the verbiage that uh, offended anybody and so this book that they republished was now available in schools and libraries and and everything like that so the original band this new book which basically subbed in all these new words not banned so we see this with other comp like with other people as well they turn words like uh when people said i i feel happy and gay people might equate being uh, you know the word gay isn't happy with uh homosexuality or people may uh you know write books in the uk and use words that make sense there but they don't transition well over here um, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, can I bum a fag? You know what I mean? Uh, they, yeah. you know, obviously mean one thing, but over here we may think of another thing. So what do you think, Jeremy, about the, the trend of people taking royalty free or uncopyrighted books and basically rewriting old English into English that we can understand now or just substituting words into, you know, taking words and subbing them out? and making them easily read. What do you think about this? You know, I think if it's done for the purposes of education, you know, for instance, if you have a very difficult book that you want to teach to a very young audience, you know, for instance, if you want to do a version of Moby Dick for a 10-year-old, you do an abridged version. Uh, So I think that that is a, a, a theoretical way in which you you know, change older books uh, to make them better for a certain audience, perhaps. Um, I think that uh, if it's done for an artistic reason, uh, for instance, if you say you um, replace all of a certain racial epithet, which we all know uh, from Huckleberry Finn, with, uh, you know, the word marshmallow, and you find there's some some artistic reason for doing it, um, that that could be interesting. but, you know, for all the other purposes I can possibly think of, I find it, the idea really abhorrent. And, uh, you know, not because I think that something like uh, Huckleberry Finn is like sacred, no word can be changed. Um, I just feel like it, you're, you're, you're subtracting so much of the artistic and educational value uh, in almost every possible scenario of doing this that it just really rubs me the wrong way. Um, You know, in the U.S., we have a very strong sort of localized system of you should basically be able to do what you want if you're not hurting other people. And if there are parents out there um, who want their children to read Huckleberry Finn without all those nasty words that they don't like, um, then those parents can just suffer the consequences, which is having poorly educated, uh, sheltered, and and I I would feel I'd pity them, uh, pitiful children. Um, so, you know, that, that's kind of the freedom that we enjoy here, uh, to, to sort of mess our own stuff up. 
Um, but so I would never do it, and I sort of find the idea abhorrent. Um, but I don't think we should necessarily make a law preventing people doing it. I mean, again, it's, it's a free country. Well, it comes down to there is a law called moral rights, and many European countries have embraced this, which basically says that you're not allowed to significantly change work and publish it even if the commercial copyright has expired, whereas moral rights have a less robust tradition in the United States uh, because it, uh, basically U.S. copyright emphasizes the protection of financial reward over the protection of creative uh, you know, a creative freedoms. So you see more U.S. publishers do this over like European publishers. Um, you know, I, I'm in total agreement with you where I find that if you change, say, you know, changing explanatives aside, you know, with, with the Huckleberry Finn instance, but changing like the verbiage used on older books to make it more fall in line with today's standards, where does it end? Because if you rewrite a book to today's standards and then, you know, we have kids, uh, Jeremy, um, they grow up to be like 20 years old and they start reading these books. All of a sudden, that original book has been changed two or three times by the time they read it or their kids have their kids, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you have like a book like Huckleberry Finn that's been rewritten three or four times in order to appeal to those the sensibilities of the day or the political climate of the day where finally you're reading this book and it's like it's so sanitized that you're like why does everyone even think that this is a great book anymore they speak like we do today you know they they use you know euphemisms that we use today so I, I where do you draw the line once you allow people to sort of um sanitize books like that because you sort of lose that perspective on how people spoke back in the day you know when you read shakespeare or you read like chaucer like jeffrey chaucer you kind of know the way that they spoke back in the day or if you read like older books by like you know plato and like socrates and like uh you know, you read Kafka, you know, they when you read those books, you almost get like um, a perspective on like this is the way people spoke and this is the way people wrote back then. Whereas if you sanitize all those books and make them so easy to read that it's silly, you sort of like lose that perspective of history. And all of a sudden it's like once you start changing all these books, it's like we're losing ourselves in history in order to make books easily read and I don't know if I'm down with that. Yeah, I'm not I'm not either, but I also respect other people's right to make their own decisions about this. I while I find their decisions incredibly stupid, uh, I, I respect that right. Um, and I think that we do have a lot of parents uh, in this country who have done things that, um, you know, are really, really silly and, and don't benefit their kids. But, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily the best decider of what's good for your kids. So, uh, you know, I, while I would never, ever do anything like that myself, and I do find it sort of a disgusting idea, um, I, I also respect the rights of other people to, to do things like that. All right. If you guys want to weigh on on this discussion, you could comment on this podcast uh, link that uh, both myself and Jeremy will be sharing with you. Uh, you can weigh in on this or anything else that we've talked about today on that. Uh, Jeremy, 
where are you at in terms of uh, interesting things happening at Digital Book World these days? Well, uh, we have a webcast coming up that I think everyone should take a look at. It is on April 30th. It's noon Eastern time. And it's uh, me uh, and some of the editors of some of the most popular um, literary blogs out there talking about uh, what ebooks are readers actually reading. We're going to look at some bestseller data, but then we're also going to talk to uh, Maddie Crum of the Huffington Post Books, um, Rebecca Shinsky from Book Riot. Uh, and Isaac Fitzgerald, who's the books editor at BuzzFeed, and get their sort of uh, from the gut take of what is popular right now, what's hot, what's going to be hot uh, in the coming years. Well, it sounds interesting. So everyone should join that. Um, w the IDPF is uh, coming up soon. Uh, it's uh, two days instead of one day, so you guys want to check out that. Um, they've actually released their full speaker list uh, Pretty recently, I think like last week, they finally released, uh, you know, all the conferences, all the speakers and everything like that. So uh, you might want to check out uh, the IDPF.org site if you're interested in digital publishing, which if you you aren't interested, but if you're listening to the show, that's kind of odd. In any case, uh, you've been listening to the Goody Beauty Radio Show with uh, Michael Kozlowski and Jeremy Greenfield. Um, Everybody, thanks for listening and take care.